the universe that people like Dawkins and Harris inhabit is so intensely conditioned by mythological presuppositions that they take for granted the, the ethic that emerges out of that as if it's just a given, a rational given. And this, of course, precisely do, not Nietzsche's observation as well as Dostoevsky's. That's Nietzsche's observation. You don't get it. The ethic that you think is normative is a consequence of its, of, its, of its nesting inside this tremendously lengthy history, much of which was expressed in mythological formulation. You wipe that out. You don't get to keep all the presuppositions and just assume that they're rationally axiomatic. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and this week we're continuing the series. This is part two of our discussions on chapter one and Willard speaking of this cultural moment, flying upside down, our morals being being detached from our actions. What is the consequence of that? What is the holes and the gaps in the third culture? Wanting all the good fruit from the second culture, but not wanting the king. What does this look like? And what does it lead to? That's what we're discussing this week. More quotes from Liz Newbegin. We have a clip from Jordan Peterson. And some content from this cultural moment. A wonderful podcast that I will link in the description. If you haven't listened to it, listen to seasons one and two at the least. Some fantastic conversations there, putting their, putting their finger on the pulse of what is happening right now, which is why we use it here. So, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. We're building towards something that I think is going to be very interesting, probably somewhere that is just now going to become clear at the end of this episode. And I hope it's somewhere that you can follow, somewhere that you can, you can see where this is going. And so, I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging. I hope it's edifying. I hope it's fruitful. As always, ballfastpodcast.gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us. You can follow us on Instagram there. You can DM Daniel there. And you can give to the GoFundMe if you're so inclined, if you feel led, if you've been encouraged and enlightened and challenged by anything we've done in the past. If you enjoy what we do here, you can give to my C.S. Lewis trip. And that will be in the description below. Without further ado, here is episode two on chapter one of The Divine Conspiracy. So um, this next um, thing we're going to reference is a podcast. Um, Give me one second, let me... We've mentioned it in passing before. Yeah. Um, so I can't remember the other uh, podcast host's name. It's John Mark Comer. And do you remember um, his friend? Oh, Mark Sayers. Mark yes. Sayers. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Mark Sayers is a pastor from Australia. Uh, John Mark Comer is in Portland. And they... Um, they have this great podcast called This Cultural Moment. We've referenced it before. We have plans to reference it again, if not within the gospel series afterwards. <clears throat> um, great, great stuff. I would highly recommend uh, 
the listen. And as we've been reading, as you've been reading Noob again, we've been reading Willard and others, the stuff that they've been saying about our culture has really meshed well, partially because of the influence of Nubigan on them. In fact, the episode that we're going to be listening to is from their season one. It's the second episode. Um, though part of what we're going to listen to is their summation of the first. Um, but this episode in particular is called Leslie Nubigan Riding a Bus Home from India mm-hmm. in, I think, 1979. Um, and it's talking about the, his transition from being a missionary in the non-Western world and then coming back home to the Western world. Um, this is something that I've seen a little bit personally. Um, I've, I've known several missionaries and they've expressed to me coming home and going to Zaxby's and having the Coke machine with all of the different options for your drink and all of the flavors that you can add or take away and things like that. And them just being faced with this overwhelming paralysis of options. One option among many that you have to choose. And your preference for one soda over another is just your value. Yeah. And I think that's a true case of your, well, you like it. Who are you to say that I can't like Dr. Pepper, but you like Mountain Dew. Yeah. And who's to say that I can't have a, shot of fake orange flavoring in my Dr. Pepper, even though to me that sounds disgusting, maybe you like it, right? That's what the Zaxby's Coke machines let you do. But they were faced with this paralyzing number of choices. Mm -hmm. Just one option among many. And it led to choice paralysis, which is another thing that I think tends to happen in our culture. But that's another discussion. And so Leslie Newbegin undergoes this exact same transition and writes a lot of the work that kind of forms the basis for a lot of the conversations we're having between him and Willard and others. So anyway, Newbegin has highly influenced this podcast. And so they're going to give us, in this clip that we're going to play, three paradigms of culture, three movements a culture undergoes. This isn't Newbegin's paradigm, by the way. Yeah, this, they they reference the name. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but they reference the name in the time clip. So I'll try to um, remember to say it again. Okay. In our last episode, we made the point based off of Philip Reef's sociological paradigm of first culture, second culture, third culture, of pre-Christian, Christian or Christianized, and post-Christian culture. So pre-Christian culture is essentially Europe before the gospel of Jesus or the Roman Empire and paganism before the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's Africa before the modern missions movement or even America before the Plymouth Brethren where there's no knowledge of Christ at all, and it's a world steeped in spirituality, often of gods, goddesses, demons, angels, good, evil, malevolent power lurking behind the world. Then you have a, a world that is, that is second culture or Christian or Christianized that is shaped from the ground up by the Christian value system, by the moral and sociopolitical vision of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom, of course, was a sociopolitical vision. It was a vision for how to organize as a society. So you have all these ways in which Western culture, more than any other culture, 
has been shaped by Christ and by his teachings. And so many of the values that we just assume are human values, whether it be basic human rights, the dignity of life, equality, justice, are actually really Christian values that have had a global historic influence on the West more than anywhere and not so much on the East. And so there's some fascinating commentary and cultural reality there. But then post-Christian culture, which is the moment that we're more living in, especially if you live in a Melbourne or a Portland, but increasingly even if you live in Dallas or middle America because we all have access to the internet, we're all breathing the air of secularism, our political world now, which takes up so much of our mental real estate, is now thoroughly secular. And so increasingly we're living in this post-Christian culture, and that does not mean that we've moved on and we've left Christian culture behind but rather post-Christian culture is deconstructionist. It's almost like wanting to tear down the system that we've built as re rebellion or reaction against Christian culture, but yet it still wants to carry forward so many of the values of Christian culture. So Mark's line that he used last episode was, it wants the kingdom without the king. Mark, I think there's all sorts of implications So um, he talks about first Christian or first culture, second culture, third culture, these three cultural paradigms. The first being pre-Christian. Really, you could talk, do what? Pagan is the word yeah. we would use. Pagan. Um, you really could talk about these three cultural movements in response to anything. So you could say pre-pagan, pagan, post-pagan, post -pagan, if you wanted. But with, for the purposes of their conversation and the purposes of ours, we're talking about Christian as the predominant um, reference point. So you've got the pre-Christian or pagan culture that has no real substantial knowledge of the gospel. You've got the Christian culture that is predominantly ruled by an understanding about the gospel, whether or not that understanding is correct. Then you've got the post-Christian culture and this paradigm is in direct response to the um, the culture before it this christian culture that crystallized for a long time now one thing that he talks about too that i think is interesting to highlight is um, <clears throat> the christian values what was it that he said about he uses a specific phrase. I don't remember. Yeah, I wrote down Christian values and I forgot exactly. It was towards the end, I think. Our political world now, which takes up so much of our mental real estate, is now thoroughly secular. And so increasingly, we're living in this post-Christian culture, and that does not mean that we've moved on and we've left Christian culture behind, but rather post-Christian culture is deconstructionist. It's almost like wanting to tear down the system that we've built as re rebellion or reaction against Christian culture, but yet it still wants to carry forward so many of the values of Christian culture. So Mark's line that he used Pause. last episode was... Yeah, so this idea of um, carrying forward the values and keeping the kingdom, or yeah, you want the kingdom without the king. Um, and there's a big debate among um, a lot of the popular philosophical figures of our time, even 
talk Jordan Peterson or Sam Harris, um, people like that, is where do we derive our morality from? And people like Sam Harris like to talk about how um, you, they want to ground their moral ethic in something other than Christianity. Um, whereas people like Peterson and others will talk about how it appears as though this moral ethic that is the kingdom that we want, but we want it divorced from the king, seems to only have developed because of the Judeo-Christian framework. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I think is super interesting, um, and he references cultures that have been largely untouched by the predominant hand of Christianity. Um, those would be more Eastern cultures. So, and, but as I said before, they were, and then they weren't. Yeah. Yeah. But then one thing I think is, then you could say that there's been a, a move towards a, then you could, so like say, uh, a pre-Christian, Christian, post-Christian slash like post-Christian slash pre-Muslim, Muslim, post-Muslim culture. Yeah. Um, which Islam in and of itself is a very interesting case study for all of this because of how much the cult, the religion envelops the culture and the law. But, um, yeah, or pre-Hindu, Hindu, post-Hindu culture. Yeah, well, so, so in- Like you I said, you can do this with direction. a bunch of other things. Yeah, but I, I was going to go in that direction. One of the things that's super interesting in Eastern cultures is um, the predominance of karmic views mm -hmm. of um, like caste systems. So you're born into a caste because of the way karma- places you after your previous life, your previous incarnation, and the moral choices that were made there. And so this view is... This is a reality which bears upon your life. It's a reality that bears upon your life. And it's a direct... I won't say it's something that was maybe born as a polemic from the image of God narrative, but it's an ideology that comes in direct conflict with the image of God narrative we find in the Bible. And I think there are many other social frameworks in other cultures that have been largely untouched by predominant power of Christianity, at least culturally speaking, that have these similar views. I mean, if we want to go pre-Christian in the pagan world, right, you had Caesar as Lord and Pharaoh as God, right? Those were paradigms that made one singular person the image of God, mm -hmm. and their values were the news that you had to contend with. Whereas in the Christian framework and in the Jewish framework as well, we are all in the image of God. And in some sense, that is a part of the news you have to contend with. We all have inherent value. And Speaking so... Go ahead, finish your thought. Oh, I was just going to say, this is something that's so deeply ingrained in Western thought, which is interesting because pre-Christian West, talking Aristotle, didn't see it that way. He didn't see slaves 
or women as having inherent intrinsic value. There's a, there, there are a lot of things Aristotle said on those two categories, and even children, actually. It was only grown men who had intrinsic value. And in some sense were, you could say, made in the image of God. He wouldn't have used those terms, right? But the same thing gets extended to all of humanity within the, the moral, moral framework of Christianity. And that's one thing that I'm trying to use as this paradigm setting reality that has to be contended with that changes from pagan to Christian or pre-Christian to Christian. But that's something that most post-Christians still want to hold on to, and yet it is uniquely Christian mm-hmm. or Judeo-Christian, I should say, right? Um, <clears throat> a lot of people want to beg to differ, and Sam Harris points to, I believe it's called the, um, let me see, it's the genetic fallacy in saying that just because something was born in this in this cultural situation or this um, religious framework doesn't mean that it's the only way that that thing can arise, that idea, and that it's the best way that that idea can arise. And that's fair. But I also find it very interesting that historically speaking, it is the only way that that thing has arised, actually. We have other instances of independent cultures developing this idea of human lives being valuable, yes, but not necessarily to the degree of the image of God, I don't think, at least that I've seen. We also don't seem to have ideas of, um, or this then gets linked to what we would call now um, social justice. And there are ideas of social justice that are present in other cultures and other Mm -hmm. times and places. But this also doesn't get linked necessarily to the explicit value between people. Sometimes it's the means of um, social progression. To gain your way up the social ladder, you're you're expected to be generous. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting that- Not because you should give to the poor because they are as much or as valuable as you are. Yes. Yeah. There's a very different, and we could even critique the way we ourselves personally or our culture engages with this thing. But the ideal, I think, is all men and women created equal. And it's crucially posited within this second culture mm-hmm. that, and so I'm, I'm using this as an example that we can track through all three, right? Because once we get to this third culture, this post Christian culture, we want that aspect of the kingdom but we do not want the good news that Jesus Christ is king. We want to take the consequences and not deal with the gospel. We like some of the consequences of this Mm -hmm. gospel, and we want to keep those. We want to throw some out, and we definitely don't want the king on the throne because that means it's something I have to reckon with, not just good advice. That, I think, is the biggest point we can make using this paradigm. Anything to add? I'll just add this. For those of you that don't think, me included, that we read enough scripture.
Galatians 3. To keep, to show what kind of culture is Paul talking to? In Galatia. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. That verse in itself is so interesting. Therefore, the law was our disciplinary until Christ came, so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinary. For in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed, yourself, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is this, is this good advice, something which you can take or leave, or is this news? As many of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed, yourself, clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free male or female, all these distinctive categories which you will use to dominate one another. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, in accordance with the scriptures. And notice that if this is good news, not just advice, there's no need for will to power because it's the way things are. It's just the way things are. So this, all being equal under Christ, under Christ, those who have clothed on, who have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you're in the family, all these distinctive categories, again, which you will use to dominate each other, Jew or Greek, ah, those, the Jews calling other people. They were not Jews. They didn't follow the Torah. So they were outside the camp. They were unclean. And then it gets flipped on them many times in history, right? The Jews being the ones that are unclean, that are disdainful and i will i will say this notice that this passage includes jesus christ as king as the gospel and it also includes an effect of the gospel that we should not get confused with the gospel itself mm -hmm. and that is the undiscriminatory at least in regards to this racially and um Sexually, ethnically, ethnically, ethnically and sexually, sexual. mm -hmm. um, and I would even say class-wise too, mm -hmm. because slavery-free, slave free. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe this might be not explicitly in the text, but I would also say age-wise, we could get into that because of Timothy and Paul's letters to Timothy. Mm -hmm. But um, this is including an effect of the gospel. There's no discrimination, no exclusion based on these characteristics. Now, and that's not to say that this inclusion is the gospel, and we'll get into that in weeks to come. That is to say, it is an effect of the gospel. Again, all these barriers which you will use to demarcate yourself against one another, 
or is different from one another or is better or worse than one another don't exist or unimportant, you should say. Where else do you get the phrase, all men created equal? These truths that are self-evident, self-evident how? Well, um, it's because they come from, they become self-evident within the context of a Christian culture. And I, I mean, this, we could very easily get into aspects of uh, moral law theory, like natural law and things mm-hmm. like that. I think that's best left for another time or maybe, maybe loosely touched on later. But um, I think it's important to recognize that though these things might be apparent, potentially apparent to all, right? you could even go Romans 2, for when they behave in accordance with a law in their hearts, right? Not an external law, but a law within themselves. They testify to themselves as though they had heard the law. And thus, when they break it, or they stand condemned. But this becomes the governing the plausibility structure, to use a, a new begin term, the governing paradigm within the second culture. What then becomes the dominant paradigm of the third? Now, unless mm-hmm. you have anything more to say here, the next timestamp we have for them is uh, twelve. I, well, hang on, I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna move something up here cool. in our outline, just to hit home again on the apparent self-evident nature of morality or of the effect of the second culture, the Christian culture. Crime and punishment, he has a, his main character, in Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment, he has a, his main character, uh, Raskolnikov, decides that he's going to commit a murder, and he has very good justification for the murder, and Dostoevsky's very good at this. He, he puts his characters into very, very difficult moral situations and gives them full justification for pursuing the, the, uh, for pursuing the pathway that they're pursuing. And so Raskolnikov He's broke and starving. He wants to go to law school. His sister's about to prostitute herself, rough, roughly speaking, by marrying a guy that, that hates her, that she hates, and, that, and he has contempt for her, at least acts in that manner. He's trying to rescue his mother as well, who's also in dire financial straits. He, he, he goes to a pawnbroker to pawn his meager position so that he can continue to scrape by. And she has this niece, I believe it's her niece, that's not very bright, who she basically treats as, an, as a slave and is horrible to. And, and so the, 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 the pawnbroker has this money. Raskolnikov is in dire need. He thinks, look, I'll just kill her because why the hell not? I'll take her money. She's not doing any good with it anyways. I'll free her niece who's just lurking as a slave. She's got all these other people 
tangled up in her pawnbroker schemes, all that'll happen is the world will be a better place. And the only thing that's holding me back is conventional moral cowardice. And, you know, Dostoevsky has his character in Crime and Punishment go through days, hours, hours and days and weeks of intense imagination about this, rationalization about this, trying to justify himself, placing, him outside, placing himself outside the law so that he can perpetrate this act, and telling himself with all the best nihilistic arguments that the only possible thing that could be holding him back is an, an arbitrary sense of indoctrinated morality. And so Dostoevsky explores that. He does commit the murder, and then, of course, all hell breaks loose because things don't necessarily turn out the way that you want. He gets away with it, however. Well, he gets away with it technically because no one knows he did it. But he doesn't get away with it in relationship to his own conscience. And so that the rest of the book explores that. Well, Dostoevsky, I believe it was in Crime and Punishment, although he makes the same point in many of his books, he makes a very fundamental point. And this is the kind of point that that I think that people who haven't investigated these matters down this particularly lit particular literary and philosophical pathway never grapple with. Dostoevsky said straightforwardly, if there's no God, so if there's no higher value, let's say, if there's no transcendent value, then you can do whatever you want. And that's the th question that he's investigating. And you see, this is why I have such frustration, say, with people like Sam Harris, the sort of radical atheists, because they seem to think that once human beings abandon their, their grounding in the transcendent, that the the plausible way forward is with a kind of purest rationality that automatically attributes to other people equivalent value. It's like, I just don't understand that. They, they, they believe that that's the rational pathway. What the hell is irrational about me getting exactly what I want from every one of you whenever I want it at every possible second? Why is that uh, irrational? And how possibly is that more irrational than us cooperating so we can both have a good time of it? I don't understand that. I mean, it's as if the, the psychopathic tendency is irrational. There's nothing irrational about it. It's pure naked self-interest. How is that irrational? I don't understand that. Where, where's the pathway from rationality to, to an egalitarian virtue? Why the hell not every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost? It's a perfectly coherent philosophy. And it's actually one that you can institute in the world with a fair bit of material success if you want to do it. So, I don't, un see, to me, I think that, that the universe that people like Dawkins and Harris inhabit is so intensely conditioned by mythological presuppositions that they take for granted the, the ethic that emerges out of that as if it's just a given, a rational given. And this, of course, precisely do, not Nietzsche's observation as well as Dostoevsky's. That's Nietzsche's observation. You don't get it. The ethic that you think is normative is a consequence of its, of its, of its nesting inside this tremendously lengthy history, much of which was expressed in mythological formulation. You wipe that out. You don't get to keep all the presuppositions and just assume that they're rationally axiomatic. They're, the rational, to make a rational argument, you have to start with an in initial proposition. Well, the proposition that underlies Western culture is that there's a transcendent morality. Now, you could say that's a transcendent morality instantiated in the figure of God. That's fine. You could even call that a personification of the morality. If you, if you want to 
if you, if you don't want to move into a metaphysical space, I'm not arguing for the existence of God. I'm arguing that the ethic that drives our culture is predicated on the idea of God and that you can't just take that idea away and expect the thing to remain intact midair without any foundational support. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what I was getting at. <laughs> I mean, you, it, like Again, you said, he's, ma he's making a purely moral argument too, by the way. Right. Yeah. But to, to use him in conversation with Newbegin, because we referenced him in the facts versus value conversation we had before about literal mm -hmm. meanings yeah right or let's say truth facts and truth and if you take away this foundation this belief in a transcendent reality call it god or whatever if you take away that thing i think he his point is just i don't think there's any way around it if you take that away, your entire axiomatic structure that you've built your morality on crumbles because you've lost the idea of the image of God in, in some way are tying to this tra transcendent reality, which takes you've lost away. A, you've lost something which to strive for. You're flying upside down. Yep. And you've, you've taken away. You have no uh, instrument of orientation. Nothing. You're the two spaceships that have come out of hyperspace and we like to think that they come out at eye level in the same orientation facing each other. But in reality, they, they would come out in completely weird orientations, but it's not visually pleasing to us. And so we will it over something else, right? Again, it's, you have to have will to power if you don't have a transcendent reality because the transcendent reality You've taken that away. Therefore, the only thing that can give us any kind of orienting principle is my will over your will or vice versa. But if there is a transcendent reality, sometimes it doesn't matter how much I will. I can push against the brick wall all I want. It's going to take a certain amount of force to knock it down. And I myself probably am not going to be capable of that. It's going to take a certain amount of force to walk up a hill or walk down. It will do certain things if I drink from the waterfall or jump off the waterfall or try to climb up the waterfall. There is a reality that I have to contend with. Now we're talking about physical space, but yes. Yes. Yeah. But, but I think that idea of physical space can track on mm -hmm. to a transcendent morality a morality you even and what we're getting at here with this you know harris will take the cool man you just stole all my morality and try to place it in say genetics or ob physical objectivity That doesn't sound super rational. You're starting with an axiom that you yourself can't arrive at because 
Um, again, facts and values. Well, if we say that there's something higher above us to which we is a reality to which we must submit. And we can argue, right? Obviously, you know, all men created equal. Well, they weren't treated that way in America for a couple hundred years at the very least. But as, um, as, uh, Oh, what's Douglas Murray points out. That's just a ticking time bomb. You can't have that as an axiomatic statement for the foundation of your country and carry on slavery for 500 years. But you can have, you cannot have that as an axiomatic presupposition yes. and carry out slavery like they did in the Roman Empire, like they did in Egypt, and like they've done in a significant amount, if not all, of other societies that have been left untouched by this axiomatic principle. So, I guess to bring it back home a little bit, you can now see how important this three-paradigm structure is and how important and how influential the second paradigm is even while you're in the third mm -hmm. right and i would say how important and influential the first paradigm is while you're in the second too right because this all is is just a rolling rolling over right um, unless you have anything else to add there i think this would be no. a great time so um back to this cultural moment minute mm -hmm. 12 through 1430 um, here we're going to talk a bit more about the because we've spent a lot of time on the second culture here we're going to talk a bit more about the third culture As always, thank you guys very much for listening to that. I hope it's clear kind of where we're heading now, talking about this cultural moment, talking about flying upside down, the fact that our morals are disconnected from our actions, and that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount comes to save us from this. The fact that because this third culture only wants the values from the second culture and not the king, they want the kingdom. Without the king, that causes a problem of importance, of hierarchy, of vision, as we'll see. So that's more what we're going to talk about next week. And then the week after, extensive quotes from C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, The Abolition of Man. And so we can look forward to that. I'm very excited to get there. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at belfastpodcast.gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at, Belfast at the Belfast Podcast. You can DM Daniel there. You can give to the GoFundMe for my C.S. Lewis trip if you feel so inclined and if you are financially able. If you've been encouraged and helped by anything we've produced, please consider doing that. Any gift over $5 gives you content, gives you access to content I'm going to create as a result of the trip. And as always, thank you guys very much for listening.